atoa, mangorongo ki te whenua, wakaro pai ki nga tangatakatoa. Uh, kia ora wānau, nau mai haere mai uh, ki te hui a Come Home Podcast for 2017. It's uh, nice to have you all along. Um, I hope your summer has been uh, a good one. Uh, like most of us, it's been wet. Oh, where, does, where was the summer from last year? Oh my goodness. And of course, autumn is upon us and uh, the temperature has dropped. But um, as we get into the first uh, series of podcasts for this year, um, what, what we're going to do is we're going to actually go through a series of teachings and speakers from the Earth Conference that uh, Link New Zealand uh, ran last October. Uh, Link NZ is a network of uh, uh, is a, a church network in New Zealand of about sixteen or so different churches from around the Motu. Uh, aren't, aren't linked on doctrine, but are linked together in relationship. And so, last October we gathered together at All Wai Marae in uh, Waitara. Um, where we came together for a weekend and we had a whole bunch of kōrero from different people. Um, we learned the story, where well, we heard the story for, of Parihaka being there in Taranaki. It was a, uh, it was the appropriate way to start, which was just phenomenal. Unfortunately, we don't have that on a podcast because that's not our place to tell. That's the Parihaka story. If you want to learn the Parihaka, Parihaka story, you go to Parihaka and, and uh, learn from the people. But... Um, uh, we're going to do some, the, basically the speakers that were there at the conference, I'm going to release their talks over the next month. So um, first up we've got uh, Dr. Alastair Reese, um, and then uh, the second week will be yours truly. And then we've got, um, also we have um, Sindhu Ruakiri again, and also some really um, cool little moments from Greg Fleming, who is the CEO of The Parenting Place, and also... Um, uh, Andrew Judd, who was the ex-mayor of New Plymouth, he shares his story about his journey as the mayor. But um, so that's what we're going to do over the next month. So tune in. Uh, some these the, these talks are really are really good. They're really helpful. It's got some great insights there. Um, but we start with with Dr. Alastair Reese um, and Ali's first. Um, he, is sort of first two parts of it. The first sort of 10, 12 minutes, he's actually talking about this the hui we ran called Earth. A great name for a gathering, but he he really unpacks about um, uh, you know the significance of this space and this place we live. Uh, and then we're going to pause after him, and I might throw in a few comments at that point as well before we get on to his um, main part, which is setting up the story of God in Aotearoa. Um, but before we get into it, a couple other things. Uh, some of you might know of um, the, the CD by the uh, Link Church in Hamilton that was put, that we released last December, uh, called Kia Kaha. Uh, over this series as well, I'm going to drop different tracks um, from that CD. Uh, you can get that off iTunes if you'd like. Um, it's it's a real cool CD with different, um, you know, Māori and Pākehā waita in it uh, that you can use for churches and or, or whatever. But I'll I'll share some of the tracks as we go through the series over the next month as well. So yeah. So yeah. Other than that, um, let's get into it. And uh, with Dr. Alistair Reese framing the hui called Earth. 
kapoa tapo tuatahi koteao me on the mia katoa kapoa tapo tuarua kote tangata he katiaki moteao kapoa tapo tuatoru kote tamanui o teao katoa he atua he tangata fano fano tu matari peka homie kuye dai kie I'm just reminded of that little um, whakatauki or tauparapara this pole here. And uh, excuse me for those that I can't see or can't see me. I hope you can see the screen. Uh, <coughs> this is the title of what I'm wanting to speak to, the, to you about this morning. And it's a big take that we have. And so I'm inviting you into it and so you can hopefully relax I prayed a little bit about what to speak this morning and I think there's many people who are possibly at the beginning of a journey and many of you will have heard this before and to those that have, uh, Donald and others, um, Arahamai, um, I hope that you will get refreshed by it. But I just feel it's important that we have some, we have a pull, that we have something foundational and, and solid to be able to uh, progress the journey through. So I'm going to talk uh, Bible and I'm going to try and integrate the Bible into a story of our land, Aotearoa. Mm. It's very um, deliberately saying a story. It's not the story, it's the story through my lens. Each one of us will have a story. Like last night, Mata, she talked her story around Parihaka. There are many stories of Parihaka, uh, and we, we tell the story through the way that we see things. So this is my interpretation uh, and offering to you, Noreira. Um, can I just say how wonderful it is to be here, and thank you to uh, Fraser, not only for giving me an opportunity to, uh, to say some things, but also to belong, uh, to have a, a tūranga waiwai. Uh, there are not many places around the motu that you can actually uh, feel and stand and talk about these sorts of things that we're talking about today, but not only talk about them, actually experience and do the things that we're doing. Uh, so I want to say to you, uh, that you've come here and that you have um, immersed yourself uh, in this beautiful whanui that I don't know how many stories. Can you imagine how many stories are in here? We could actually spend the whole uh, three days listening to the stories uh, in this in this study. It's untold. So what we're going to be doing is actually doing a kind of an overview of a massive story. It's called a macro view. We're going from Genesis to Revelation, uh, from Israel uh, to the outer parts of the earth. And we, you know, so, um, good luck. Um, <laughs> mātou e, e Father, help us this morning. Yeah. Uh, mai mātou. Uh, lead us and guide us. Um, uh, listen to our cries this morning as we come before your throne and seek to um, display some of your wisdom. Noreira, uh, who am I? Um, my name is Alastair Rees and I live in the Rohe of uh, Tapuika, 
and Waikaha in the Bay of Plenty. My ancestors uh, came here in 1867 on the ship called the um, Himalaya. That's why in my pepeha last night I say, uh, call Himalaya the Waka. Uh, that's the ancestor of my, uh, sorry, the ship of my eponymous ancestor, uh, Alexander Rees. And he was a, a poor man who came out from Glasgow at that time. Uh, we live on a farm. My wife and I, who is Canadian, her name is Jeannie. Uh, she is Mi'kmaq, uh, First Nation, Lebanese, Canadian. Um, she is a woman, and we live in a cross-cultural marriage. And, um, so I live it in the home, um, male-female, um, cross-cultures, and, and learning to, to do what reconciliation is. <laughs> By the grace of God, we've been together for 35 years. Um, I, had a, I have a son, or I had a son, his name was Sean, and he was killed in an avalanche in the mountains in, uh, Waipan, uh, in the South Island. Um, that was uh, some 15 years ago, but he lives uh, in our memory. My daughter Naomi, uh, she, some of you might know her, she worked with Aspiring Leaders Forum in, in Auckland, but she has been home for a year, uh, learning for our Māori. Uh, she just got a new job back in uh, two jobs. She, does a little job in Putaradu, uh, and she has also got a little job out in West Auckland, so that she's got some stuff in her kete now to uh, to launch back into the world. They were meant to be here, but Naomi is sick, uh, so my wife is nursing her today. So I'm feeling a bit mocky mocky around that. We, uh, want, I want to start by saying the journey that we're on. I think a lot of it has to do with an adjustment. Uh, of our worldview, and uh, we need, I think, uh, to recalibrate something of our understanding of mission. It's actually much bigger, wider, deeper than than we might think. Uh, I am deeply ingrained by mission. What I do is mission. Um, it might not have the definition or the appearance of mission to some who who within the church would look at uh, mission in a traditional way, but I feel it in here that uh, I'm walking uh, hopefully by the call of God. And I love this cartoon here which says um, uh, something about, oh my goodness, what? The Bible says one day the earth will be destroyed. And this guy stands up and says, do the meek know this? Um, so what that cartoon is talking about is, and what you've, we've expressed in our saying about earth, I think, is that we are beginning to understand that as, as Pākehā, and most of what I'm saying is addressing to the Pākehā mentality. We are understanding that the gospel is a lot more earthed than what we might have thought it was. Because much of our theology has been so heavenly oriented, uh, coming out of what we would call a revival mentality, that we've actually forgotten that God created the earth, that he so loved the cosmos, yeah. uh, this created order that he gave his only begotten son uh, in order to to restore this cosmos. So one of the things we're doing and we're seeing, and which we are actually in learning from uh, our indigenous friends, is how significant the creation is in, this, in, this theme, in the scheme of things. Let me begin by reading, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. In uh, 
Te ao Māori, there's a very basic understanding uh, of, in their worldview, which says this, e te kore, ki te pō, ki te ao marama. In the beginning, there was nothingness. In the movement from nothing, uh, it came into the darkness. Uh, and then from that darkness proceeded uh, into the world of light. Uh, so if you look at the first chapter and the first verses of Genesis, you will see that exact same thing as I just read, you know, that the earth in the beginning was itakore, it was formless and void. And then it went into tepo, there was darkness over the surface of the deep. And then God spoke, kamea ia, he said, let there be light. And light came, kiteao marama. What I'm wanting to suggest in that is that, again, some of our adjustment needs to be made in the area where we don't we, we think that somehow a people have no knowledge of God or no understanding of God and then they get the full knowledge of God by hearing about Jesus and one of the things that many of us have been slow to understand is that God has revealed himself to all peoples and to all places and we will talk about that a bit more but uh, nowhere more than in Aotearoa New Zealand so who are we and what are we here for God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God formed a man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostril the breath of life and the man became a, a human living being. So into that breathing into this dust, God breathed the breath of life and he created out of the dust this, uh, this created being who we are, and we are made in God's image. And something about that image uh, needs to be understood. What is it for us to be made in the image? And why has God made us in his image? And one of the key things about God is that God is a creating being. So that is one of the ways... Um, that uh, we reflect something of the image of God. We often think of the image of God as, as revealing something of the, of the character, the holiness, you know, these kind of characteristics. I want to say there's something more in terms of what this image is, that God is the, 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 the creator, the kaihotu onga miakau toa. He is the creator of all things. It's in that image uh, that we have made as we have been given this mandate, as God says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. See, this is, this is our kaitiakitanga. This is our stewardship that God has given us in the same way that God has that stewardship over all of creation. We operate as kind of like the sub well, people use the word the regents, the representatives of God uh, on this earth. I love this quotation from a guy called Middleton. He says that this image of God looks like a job description. He's saying, he says, you are made in my image. Now, I know this goes counter, uh, active, you know, it's a counterintuitive to some of our worship theology. But, you know, we just say we just have to be. But actually, God says, I created you to do. I created you to do in my, uh, according to the way uh, that I want you to do things on the earth. So the three things are, be fruitful uh, and increase in number. 
you know, that's just about having sex, basically. Um, he says, you know, just go and do it and, and produce some, some uh, uh, tamariki and some mokapuna. That's what he's called us to do. And he says, fill the earth. So he, out of those, you know, those first humans, out of that two people, he says, I want you to have sex, have some kids, and then just move out and I'll prepare this extraordinary place for you. Go and fill it. Uh, and then he says, I want you to subdue it and to rule over it, you see. So in terms of the filling, he's saying, I want you then to exercise your, your, your tiraranga tiratanga, your mana whenua, your, your kaitiaki tanga in, into those places. And I want to finish this little kind of session to say, on that part by saying that that's what our worship is. In the fullness, that's in, in, in terms of yielding our bodies, our lives, our activities in terms of this commission to operate on the face of this earth. That's uh, what we are here for. Of course, we have what's called the fall in the, in the garden, and that's a, you know, a big thing. It, it basically made a, a big mission interrupted. I've, I've labelled you know, what I talk about here as being mission interrupted in, in this land. The first mission interrupted, of course, was in Eden. And the whole story of the scriptures really is about getting that mission back on track and God's extended plan and extended strategy of how he was going to get that Edenic commission uh, set up again. And we find the end of the story in, in Revelation chapter uh, around 2022 and around there where that, that beautiful Edenic uh, picture is re, uh, reinstituted. But sometimes we think that, that there's been a finish in the fall and then suddenly we're all going to be raptured, you know, after the whole thing is finished. But we need to understand that, in, that God reinstituted that, that, Noah, that covenant of kaitiakitanga in, after the fall with Noah. And that's the covenant that we all human beings still operate under uh, before God. He says, God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Just to restate that the commission to Adam and Eve, uh, even after the fall, was re-given to Noah. And that's what all humans are called to do, uh, regardless of whether they call themselves Christians or not. So um, here we are as... Uh, as human stewards uh, in this realm, I've used this term and that uh, that I really like, and it's called uh, priests of creation. You know, we call ourselves a royal priesthood, but if we this term priest of creation means that we are actually the mediators of the divine in in this in this created order, and so we can always bear in mind two things. Uh, in our meditation, the first one is that one. I think I spoke it yesterday in, in my in my greeting to you. Noi ho te fenua mani te mea te aumangatanga te katoa e noho ana irunga. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to Him. Yeah. Sometimes we get the feeling that this is not God's place. That sometimes the devil's you know got the upper hand or he's got the rule or whatever. We need to be reminded still yeah. that this place, noi ho yeah. te fenua. Yeah. Right. This all of the created order is God's, yeah. and then He says that the, uh, we cut through to Psalm 115, he's, and, and it gives us the kind of the more of a split on that. It says the highest heavens belong to the Lord, 
but the earth he has given to humankind. So this is this area that the earth is like the subset within God's creation. He's the overseer, but he's given us a big responsibility to us and say, I've created this to you for you. Go, occupy, do your thing in it, reflect my glory in all of all that you do. So I talk about this thing about so we know about salvation and and this redemptive work that God has set in place since the fall in Genesis. And I'm saying there's a, there's a thing called a tra- tra- trajectory. Do you know what trajectory is? It's like an aeroplane flies on a trajectory. It means the path. Where is everything going? Look, it's not going to hell in a, 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 you know, in a cart. It's actually going according to the trajectory of God, which ends up in Revelation 22. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, and this is the progress of redemption, the progress of salvation. Acts 3, 21 says, For he must remain in heaven until... So Jesus must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration, the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Yeah. So there's a restoring of all things of the created order. That's where the momentum, that's the movement of God's salvation works. And we stand in that trajectory because all we're called to do actually is to know what God is doing, understand it, agree with it, and yield to it and walk in it. You know, as Jesus said, only do that, he only does that which he sees the Father doing. So he's no use, you know, trying to do something different because you're just pushing something uphill. One more scripture around this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's the scope of Christ's work. Not just so that we ourselves can escape through the fire and get to heaven. His commitment is to the entire cosmos, to the entire created order and he's committed to it and he's invited us to be a part on of in that trajectory of salvation works and it's you know what it's the most exciting thing yeah to know that this thing in god is so much bigger than going to church on a sunday morning <laughs> but it's actually to our katoa right. it's the whole shooting to google yeah. god says come Come, this is your place. Yeah. This is my place. And I've invited you to, to be involved in the process of its reconciliation and its redemption. Yeah. So, you know, it's just amazing. I just want to drop in a bit of a comment here because this, what Ellie's doing as far as locating who we are in our faith on earth is so, so important. Um, for a long time, the Christian message has been framed from a heaven and a and hell perspective. In other words, uh, in other words, a, a, a concept of eternity that is outside of Earth and outside of our time and space has been the main player on how we have framed all of our theology. And therefore, all of our practice, in other words, the point of the gospel only has only had to do with whether you, how you play in the realm of 
what we might say eternity or beyond this life. What that has meant is that the place we actually live, this life here on earth, has become, has become secondary. And because it is secondary, it becomes it just becomes less and less important. Now, um, because that has been the framework for so long, um, it's become very, very unhelpful. Because I don't know about you, but I, I, you know, I've never, I've never been to heaven, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, some people I know actually have had the opportunity to have out out of body or whatever experiences and that sort of thing. But for most of us, 99.9% of us, that's not us. We live here on earth. We live here on the ground. But the gospel's message is so important for the ground. A a, a Ngāti Maniopoto chief, uh, and I think it was around the late 1860s and stuff, during uh, the land wars period, he actually said, he said something to this effect. He says, when the missionaries first came here, they had two plows. The plow for heaven was kept going before us, while the plow for the earth was taken out of our sight. In other words, what he was saying is that the missionaries kept talking about heaven, about heaven and about heaven. And meanwhile, at the same time, the land was being taken by the crown. In other words, this this man in the 1860s he saw into Western Christian dualism. He saw into the idea that our gospel had nothing to say with how we live on the ground. Um, we kind of know that today, that that is in a way nonsensical. But so much of our culture, of our Christian culture, has been built on the understanding that the earth is not important and that's just false and it's wrong when god made the earth he called it good uh, as ali has been saying uh, and i i just want to throw this out there um and and i really want to make a comment because i just want to ask you to really really contemplate this idea you live here it's the sovereignty of god that he has put you here on the whenua right now uh, and therefore, our Christian faith is played out in how we treat this space. So, Kilda. Tuia kiterangi, tuia kitefenua, tuia. Kitengako O nga tangata katoa There is but one love 
reconciliation of all things. Wasn't it interesting last night that Mata used the, hmm. when she talked about the key issue, she says it's the issue of reconciliation. Yeah. The hohorongo. Yeah. Or the tātou paunamu is another term that's used. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, and, you know, we're all uh, invited into that. So I'm going to use, uh, in order to understand the strategy, so... Um, the Acts 17 passage, which most of you will be familiar with, but I, I think I think it's a an underutilized passage. To it's basically a cosmology that Paul the apostle stood and spoke out. What's it all about when he stands before the Areopagus in, in, in Athens and and explaining to them all the whole meaning of the universe? He says that you know if you want to know what it's all about, this is this is what it is in a synopsis. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times, seasons in history, and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets, or as Titus called them, your prophets have said, we are his offspring. So that's what we call uh, general revelation, you know, that God has called all people essentially uh, to seek God and to find him. And that's for us as Christians sometimes a bit of a you know, hard thing to get over, is that God actually reveals himself to everybody, has always revealed himself to everybody, and not just a special group of people. This is what theologians call general revelation, the understanding, the knowledge of who God is uh, through what he has created. We see that in Psalm 19, verse 1, for the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, day after day it pours for speech so that everything about him can be understood. God is saying in that, that from what I've created, you can know me. Uh, and it says in uh, Acts 17 there, he says you can know him because he's actually not far from you. And also, actually, you're really like him. You're just like him. You can actually, everyone can get to know him. So that's, that's that kind of thing that, that everybody can know about God in, 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 the big, in the big terms. We also talk about a thing called special revelation. Uh, and it comes out of uh, the, the, the statement saying, yes, in general revelation, we can know some things about God. Yeah. But let me just... Uh, quote these two scriptures here. Dominion and all belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven and these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. This is Job. Job was, it's, it's the oldest probably uh, kind of, it's the oldest book in the Bible. It's the oldest kind of expression of a relationship between a created person and God. And God says, and sorry, Job says, you know, 
we see the order of God. But however, we only hear a faint whisper. It gives a, it gives a little idea of those without the gospel of how they can actually apprehend God. What Job is saying is, you can, but it's actually only it's a whisper. Yeah. It's a yeah. whisper. Yeah. Uh, and then we have this incredible passage in Ecclesiastes 3, which I think gives us some real help in understanding the role of Jesus, the scriptures in relationship to this wider revelation of God across the cosmos. It says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the hearts of men. That means that in our DNA, the way that you and I have been created, that there is a divine, supernatural part of us that just knows that there is more than this. It knows that there is more than just the, this hard stuff. There is another reality, what we call the supernatural reality. It also means that in each one of us, we are wanting to connect uh, with this eternal realm. Every human being wants to connect with this eternal yeah, realm. Yeah. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And that's the cruncher for me. Mm. What it's saying is that you know, in all of our hearts, across the whole of humanity around the world, they can, we can all know about the reality of this eternal realm, but we don't know the detail. And that's what the beautiful scriptures are for, because they fill in the detail uh, from A to Z, from Alpha to Omega, from Genesis to Revelation, and paint the whole thing out. Now, I know it's not quite as simple as that when you read the scriptures, but if we work hard enough at it, uh, we can actually get there. So now that's the kind of what I call the biblical uh, foundations laying out, you know, why we're doing what we're doing in part today here. And I want now to contextualize that. And, and in some ways, it's what I would call a prophetic interpretation of how that Acts 17 and, uh, that Paul is talking about, what does it look like or what has it looked like here in um, Aotearoa, New Zealand? So... If we just break down that script, those scriptures in Acts 17, we say that from one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. So out of the central creation of, of whoever these people were, God created the rest of humanity. And the whole reason, as we know, is that, the, that God wanted to populate that which he had created. So he, in a sense, commissioned them and he sent them out and he provided migratory paths for the peoples of the earth. And God prepared a place for all the different fauna, uh, all the different family, hapuiwi and that. And he says, these are the places that I have prepared for you. Go and occupy these places. So we can trace some of the migratory patterns uh, and in this particular instance, we're looking at the, at the Polynesian migration. I want to suggest to you that these migratory patterns are not just kind of haphazard, coincidental, but they are part of the providential hand of God yeah, that yeah. people have been yeah. guided through the ages and led uh, through their communions with the Artur uh, into the places that God has provided for them. And so this is what's happened over you know, thousands of years through, uh, for example, Polynesia, the Mo uh, Moananui Akira, 
and eventually came down here uh, to Aotearoa. So it says there in Acts 17 that God marked out the seasons and the appointed time in history. So you know that God deals with us as individuals. You all, I'm sure, are pretty preoccupied about who you are and where you stand in the, in the seasons of God in your own personal life. Um, he also deals with us as families. You know, he deals with us also uh, as villages. He deals with us as hapu. He yeah. deals with us as greater tribes. He deals with us as cities. He deals with us. He relates to us as nations. It, there's a kind of this complex uh, interplay between all of these created orders, individual, right out to nations, uh, and in fact, right out to the whole earth. And these are called, and, and, and for all of us, there are these appointed times and seasons. And it's crucial that we know it, not only as individuals, the season that we're in, but also what season are we in as a people in this land? And how is God looking at us? Uh, so, and this, you've heard about the ebbs and the flows of civilizations. That's all part of, in some sense, this providential hand of God. I use this big word providence or providential hand because partly it's a mystery, uh, this thing of actually knowing where is God in the midst of, of our lives? Where is God in the midst of who we are as a people and the changing faces and the changing warp and woof? We, you know, and that's a, that's a discerning call and work for each one of us to do, but it's not always upfront and clear. The other thing that you see here is something very significant. And God not only marked their seasons, but he marked their boundaries. Yeah. And he said, these are the boundaries of your habitation. This is the divine order that God set in place and saying, I've provided these boundaries for you. You will institute a tikanga or protocol and in, uh, in how you organize these things. But the transgression of boundaries is actually seen in the eyes of God as something very serious. And you will see that, for example, in Proverbs. And it's something that we need to mark clearly. God is very jealous about having clear protocol around boundaries and markers of how, where we live, the places that we live. Because otherwise, if we're not clear about that, we have social chaos. If we don't have that kind of uh, boundary uh, understanding, it leads to all kinds of issues. So, what happens now? We're talking about the different seasons, the migratory patterns coming through uh, the Pacific, uh, and eventually uh, we have um, the different seasons uh, that operate in Aotearoa, New Zealand. What I'm wanting to suggest is that the different seasons of these migratory patterns are again not just accident, they're not coincidences, but somehow God's hand is in it. So when uh, Kupe, and I'll talk a little bit more about him soon, when Kupe came, the first uh, discoverer of the land, that God's hand was in it. I also want to suggest that when the other waka came, that God's hand was in it. His presence was there. You should read some of the stories of these migratory stories about the, the, the supernatural presence of God in terms of navigation and all of these things. It's, you'll be very clear that, that, that the early Polynesian uh, navigators and explorers were not just uh, you know, um, uneducated uh, people who knew nothing about the, the guidance of God. I also want to suggest that the arrival of the Pākehā is also something 
of the hand of God in it. There uh, is a providence in the arrival of the different Pākehā as well. So, um, what happened there? We'll try this one. All right. So, let's say that um, Kūpē arrived here. The you know, I want to suggest to you that every iwi uh, has their own different migratory stories, and I'm not wanting to say that Kūpē is the story or Kūpē is the man. I want to use Kupe as a representative person uh, around this migratory story. So Kupe came down uh, through the Pacific, led, I believe, by the Spirit of God to this beautiful provision of uh, the land of the long white cloud. Uh, and he carried with him something of the tikanga of his people. And of course, um, one of the things uh, that um, Kupe was carrying, I believe, is, or someone like Kupe was carrying with him this revelation of God, which we call Io, uh, or Io Matua Kore, uh, Io Tawananga. Uh, and and Io uh, carried this revelation into the land, and we've heard the stories about how this Creator God was resident already in the land uh, when the missionaries arrived. I want to just, uh, you know, because this is a bit of a contested thing, this, you know, did Māori know uh, this one God or not before? And, and some of the academics are a bit against it because for some reason. But I want to share with you this waiata that uh, comes out of Tainui. And it's an amazing waiata that was in one of their wānanga in the, um, in the 1800s. And, it's, and it shows to you this Acts 17 of the people looking for, seeking after a God. Uh, and this is their wife. It says, Ka kimi o ki fia, ka kimi o ki te tai, ka kimi o ki fia, ka kimi o ki uta, ka kimi o ki fia, ka kimi o ki raro, ka kimi o ki fia, ka kimi o ki runga, ka kimi o ki fia, e kimi o iaio. The translation is, where shall I seek? I will search in the flowing tide. Where shall I seek? I will search over the land. Where shall I seek? I shall seek in the afterworld. Where shall I seek? I shall search in the realms above. Where else could I seek in this searching for ill? So that's that kind of that, you get that Job feeling of how, how faint the whisper of his name uh, as, as these ones nice. in the one nice. are pressing to understand and to find uh, this uh, creator. Uh, of all things. Something's really um, quite strange here. And we're missing out a lot of... Um... Sorry about that. Yeah. Go on that one there, eh? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Alright. So this is the settlement. The settlement here uh, of, of Māori through that time carrying all those traditions. And unfortunately, some, a whole lot of stuff is gone, but never mind. Um, the next uh, allotted seasons uh, come with this guy called Abel Tasman. He was the first European that came here and, and he had some encounters with Māori and, and it didn't go too well. You'll all have heard of him. Interestingly enough, um, there was also uh, evidence of the fact that God was speaking to Māori about this new change, that a new season was about to come uh, upon them. And some of you will have heard about this man, Koiro uh, Ikariki, that was, um, Cindy has made kind of more well-known in the waiata that, that, she, um, that she produced. It's a waiata uh, that says several things, but 
first of all, I just want to give you a little insight into the kind of prophetic awareness uh, that Māori had prior to the arrival of Pākehā. There was this, um, as I said, this uh, seer, Tuiro uh, Ikariki from Ngāti and he began to prophesy, which you can read up there, some of the things that, got, that this man began to talk about prior to the arrival of Captain Cook about the coming of a, of a new people. And one of the things, of course, uh, that this uh, man prophesied was in this song, uh, this wife which says, Te noa tua rato atua, ko tama i roro kutia, te atua pai o te rā, ka ngaro anō te tangata. The name of their God will be the son who was killed. He is a good God. However, the people will still be oppressed. And what I want to suggest is that ties in with the Amos 3.7 thing that says that God, surely the sovereign Lord will do nothing without notifying his servants, uh, the prophets. And Toira wasn't the only one that was notified. There was Ngāpuhi, uh, there's records of Ngāpuhi prophets that received um, similar kinds of warnings about the arrival of Pākehā. After that uh, prophecy of Toira, just a few years later, we had the arrival of Captain James Cook and again we had an example down in, um, in, in Gisborne, the first encounter was an unfortunate encounter, or we would call it a cultural clash, uh, between um, Cook and, and some of the locals there, and people were killed in that encounter. The next group that came with the sealers and the whalers, and again, uh, there was some mutuality in that relationship, uh, but it was also a real mixture as these... Uh, Bakarias came from, from Europe and were coming into the land to seek uh, their fame and their fortune. Meanwhile, back uh, in London and back in England, there was another group, which I just want to, won't talk much about them, but just to signal to you that there was a group of Christians in England uh, who called themselves the Clappen Sect, and they were the ones who, in a sense, created the mission base yeah. for New Zealand, this thing called the Church Missionary Society, which was... Uh, a society that William Wilberforce was a part of forming. But they were a group of evangelical Christians who came out of the revival with a whole new understanding about the nature of indigeneity or the nature of indigenous people and that people were made in the images of God. And they were lobbying the, um, the crown back in England to say, we need to do this colonizing thing different than we've done it in the past because all peoples are made in the images of God. And this Clatton sect has been hugely instrumental in shaping uh, our early stories or the early ways that uh, this land was um, settled by, um, by Europeans. So we begin, we have these people coming in, the Tasman, the Cook, the, uh, the, the sealers and the whalers, and then Māori began to engage with these different people. And in fact, they engaged so much that they actually began to travel overseas. And this is amazing stories of people like um, Ruatara and Hongihika, uh, who went, uh, Ruatara went to London uh, and became befriended by Samuel Marston, who was the first missionary out here. Ruatara was sick. Marston took him under his care and took him into, um, into uh, Jackson Bay, into Sydney, nurtured him back to health, etc. And then finally, Ruatara and Hongihika, two Ngāpui chiefs, invited Marsden to come uh, to New Zealand and to set up um, a, a, a missionary station. You know, this is one of the important things that we need to understand in terms of our, I guess, 
Where does the place of the Romapai and the gospel and the missionary stand in, in this in this land? And right now yeah. we're probably in the in the trend where it's only bad. Uh, that they were transgressors who really had no right to be here. One of the key things is that most researchers will tell us now is that the missionaries arrived here by invitation. In the first instance, they were invited, as I said, by Rutara and Hongihika. But every mission station that I know of around the Motu, and there weren't a lot of them, but particularly, for example, in my area of Taranga Moana, that all of those mission stations and, and Waharoa Matamata, they were created by invitation of Rangatira. Mm. They didn't go in there just uh, us usurping, as it were, the authority of the places, but they went in there uh, by invitation. So, and I think that's a very uh, important thing. So as most of you will all know, Samuel Marson was the first uh, missionary per se. He was a CMS missionary. And he came with a particular mindset. Was It was a real mixture, his mindset, which you can actually uh, read in this thing. That This was his diary from the first day when, they, when he arrived up in Ohi, up north. And he said, on Sunday morning, when I was upon deck, I saw the English flag flying, which was a pleasing sight in the dawn of civilization, liberty and religion in that dark and benighted land. So that was their mindset, you see. I never viewed the British colours with more gratification and flattered myself that they would never be removed till the natives of that island enjoyed all the benefits of British subjects. Between Christmas Day, I preached from the second chapter of St. Luke's Gospel and the 10th verse. Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. You know that what happened then is that uh, there was a, this big haka that, that greeted um, uh, Samuel Marston uh, they call it the Te Hare o Ngāpuhi, or the, the, the happiness, or the happy greeting of Ngāpuhi. And really, uh, you can see here that in that, in that, um, in that haka, what they, would, what they were saying in terms of the, the phrase, uh, eka nuku nuku, eka neke neke, they're talking about actually saying, yes, we make move, we, we are moving for you. We are making room for you uh, in this place. And then they talk and they use images of... Uh, a waitangi and, and pipi pipi whairoa, the shining cuckoo that makes its nest in another person's nest and saying, but it's good. And that eventually, what they're really saying is, no my haere mai ki kone, come, you're welcome into this land. So, you know, as, as spiritual descendants of the missionaries, in the first instance, I think we need to be able to stand and say, yeah. we have a tūrana waiwai here because, not because... Uh, we, because we went through the right channels. We went through the channel of a pohiri uh, and were welcomed here. Uh, unfortunately, one of the things that we brought uh, was alongside the rongapai or the gospel was the muskets. And it wasn't just the, um, the merchants, but many of the missionaries were involved in this trade as well. Uh, and what happened was, and I'm, uh, the reason I'm talking around this musket thing is because I think it's significant in relating to the mission of the gospel. What happened was that Māori, particularly up north, uh, in term, received the musket. And what the musket did was it changed dramatically the terms of relationship between uh, different hapū and, and different iwi. Uh, the people's relationships was configured by a system called utu, or res 
reciprocity, which is both a negative and a positive thing. It means returning uh, what someone has done for you or against you, returning in kind and, if you can, up the ante. Uh, so that worked in hospitality and also worked uh, in warfare as well. Uh, and that's to do with mana. Uh, but that's another subject for another people. But essentially what happened was that when the muskets arrived, uh, prior to the, um, the arrival of the musket, Utu was, in terms of conflict, was worked out in hand-to-hand -hand com combat. But with the arrival of the musket, it changed that dramatically. And so you, um, the Ngāpuhi came down from the north, and it's not against Ngāpuhi, it's just that they were the ones that first got hold of this technology. And so they set about uh, instituting their, uh, their Utu with their um, traditional foes down through the Motu. And as you know, they came down all through Ngāti Whātua and then down uh, through um, the Coromandel and down uh, through Tauranga Moana and down into Te Arawa, ending up down there. Yeah. But what happened was there that it changed the fact that there were thousands that were slaughtered and, and, and the figures that they worked out is around 20,000 people in a very short time were killed uh, uh, during that time. So this interhapu warfare I call uh, the seedbed of the gospel. Why? Because it actually, I, I feel that around that time in the, in the early 1820s and the late 1820s, that Māori became very war-weary. Uh, and they, they actually began to say, Paul, this is, this is out of our control and something needs to happen here. And so we enter uh, this man here who I want to sort of extol today. He, he, his name is Henry Williams, or Karufa. Four eyes, they called him, um, and because they were the f he was the first person I think that had glasses. And um, Henry Williams replaced Samuel Marsden, although Samuel Marsden didn't actually live here. But Henry Williams was a naval captain. He ended up hating war. Came out here uh, to take over the CMS mission in 1823. Uh, when he arrived here, the mission. Uh, was in really poor state. They were really discouraged. They had hardly seen uh, any fruit from their work in, in their view. And so from 1814 to 1830, there were only two baptisms recorded by CMS. So that's pretty tough going. Uh, and one of them was actually a woman who married a, um, a trader down in my way in Makatu, a guy called Tapsil. She was a northern uh, princess. She came down and she had to be baptised in order to marry him. So uh, I don't know who the other person was, uh, but there wasn't essentially a lot of fruit. But one of the things that Williams did was, and I think this is a lesson for us, when Williams and the others came in up north, they stayed in that place and they stayed a long time and began to uh, learn te reo Māori, mauna tikanga, they began to engage uh, with the local rangatira. They established themselves. And basically what I'm saying is they entered into a long-term relationship. And one of the results of that long-term relationship was that Ngāpuhi invited um, Henry Williams to come with him on their war trips down the coast. And this, you can't see it very clearly, but... You could, in that photo there, for me this is a stunning uh, photograph. Uh, it's actually painted by Henry Williams himself. In the middle of those wakatauwa, uh, there is a, a sailing um, schooner, you can see it, called the Herald. 
And that was um, Henry Williams sailing amongst the um, Ngāpuhi uh, um, warriors. And so they came down from, from up around Pai here. And of course, they would call in to the different bays uh, every night and camp there. And then they would have kōrero around the different things. And one of the things that Williams was imploring them was saying, please, don't do it. You don't have to do it. And, and all that engagement around the Utu thing was also an engagement around worldview and the gospel and da 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 And it took a long time. But essentially what happened was that Henry Williams became very esteemed uh, in the sight of not only Ngāpuhi, but in Tauranga Moana where this uh, was um, engraving was, was drawn, he was also esteemed by uh, the other iwi that were being attacked. And so the Romapai, the gospel, began to get this name of the good peace. And what it was saying is that there is another way that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than that of um, revenge. And I feel that it was that concerted period of time when the narrative that the gospel had to offer around forgiveness and grace and all of those things began to enter into the hearts of people. Look, it wasn't a fact of just a missionary standing and giving the four spiritual laws and have an altar call and people come and got saved. We're talking about years of engaging and, and, and engaging with um, tikanga and, and, and talking through the things and letting the paipera tapu come and actually uh, affirm, nurture, and say, yes, also there are some different things here that would be really helpful, and people began to respond to that. So after 1830, as I said, only two baptisms, we have what's called a revival. 65,000 Māori uh, were responding uh, to, the, to the gospel. They were meeting uh, in churches, they were meeting in marae, or churches, they were just whare that had been, whare karakia that had been made. It was spread all up and down the land from almost like it seemed from nothing to we had this giant explosion. Yeah. And there is not a district on the Motu that was not impacted uh, by this. And I want to say to you that this wasn't a lip service thing. Mm -hmm. This wasn't yeah. just a Sunday attendance. Mm -hmm. the, the gospel reconfigured tikanga. And so that uh, people took it they, uh, and they moulded it and they worked with it and it reframed um, the, the way that people lived their lives. So one of the things also that uh, we've only just begun to understand that this spread of the gospel was not just the sole uh, department of, of a few missionaries and there were only a few, yeah. but mainly it was as a result of the uh, indigenous evangelists and teachers that had picked this up and walked through uh, the land with it. Look, there's some amazing stories which I could tell you, um, and this morning is not the time to go into that kind of detail, but the, it's, it's, it's amazing stories of the providence of God uh, in terms of how God in his sovereignty overturned and overcame uh, particular issues and utilised it for the gospel. Let me just say one point on that. When Ngāpuhi came down, what did they do? They actually took slaves with them back up north. 
The north was the area where, this, where the teachings of the missionaries were. And so um, these people came from all over the motu up north and they were, in a sense, they were captive slaves, but they were also had a kind of a freedom like Paul did in the New Testament and they were able to be taught and they all got converted. And then at a period of time, they all came back to their home, to their home hapu and their home iwi. And what were they carrying with them? They were carrying That's with them the Rolapai, mm. this new and different and living way. So, um, and there's beautiful stories uh, around how that um, happened up and down the Motu and then um, how it transformed society. So that's the kind of good news. I'm going to now... Translated it. They called the Rangatira to that meeting. They explained uh, all the uh, proceedings of those meetings. And uh, Claudia Orange, who is a secular historian, says the role of the English missionary in determining Maori understanding was crucial. It determined that Maori would understand the treaty as a special kind of covenant with the Queen, a bond with all the spiritual connotations of the biblical covenants. 
there would be many tribes, including the, including the British, but all would be equal under God. And she finishes by saying, the treaty was secured simply because many Māori trusted the missionaries' good intentions. Look, it's really clear that, that without the missionaries, without our spiritual tūkuna, there would be no... Um, there would be no, um, there would be no treaty, and I see very clearly uh, that the treaty is really the responsibility of the church to nurture, to kaitiaki, to to make sure that this covenant um, is is held in its proper place. This is a, a, a very important quote from a um, judge Eddie Jury, who I think um, some of you will be helped by this. In talking to Māori, Eddie Jury said that we must not also forget that the treaty is not just a Bill of Rights for Māori, it is a Bill of Rights for Pākehā too. Mm. It is the treaty that gives Pākehā the right to be here. Without the treaty, there would be no lawful authority for the Pākehā presence in this part of the South Pacific. We must remember that if we are the Tangata Whenua, the original people, then the Pākehā are the Tangata Tiriti, those who belong to the land by right of the treaty. Yeah. To honour our forebears then, we as Māori must never challenge, threaten, compromise or prejudice the rights of Pākehā to be here. We cannot claim our own rights if we do not first respect those of the others. I'm going to skip through probably some of the most important stuff that relates to the issue of the wars, uh, which essentially uh, was the thing that killed... <coughs> Uh, the good work of the gospel, hmm. the good work of the missionaries. Uh, as the missionaries move from siding with Māori to siding with, um, uh, with, um, with the crown. But let me just read this as a beautiful um, prophecy by um, Tūruki Kawiti. He says, My illustrious warriors and people, I fought with God last night, but I survived. Therefore I call upon you to trample anger under your feet. Hold fast to your faith, for the day will come when you will be ruled over by your Pākehā friends. Be patient. Wait until the sandfly nips the page of the document. That's the treaty, the sacred covenant. Then and only then shall you arise and question and oppose, lest you break the sacred word of your ancestors, the covenant. Look to the distant dis distant horizons of the sea. Wow. He's calling for Māori to be patient and don't be the first breakers of the covenant. Hmm. Let Pākehā break the covenant first and then we shall uh, respond. Uh, the Māori response was basically threefold. There was the response of, of, of war, there was the response of passive resistance that we heard about last night at, at Parihaka, but they also the other response was and was really brought real division amongst different hapu. Who do they side with? The Crown or, or do they side with Māori? And these are ongoing issues that still configure the relationships uh, between different Māori. I just want to say that, we, that our people abandoned uh, Māori, essentially. The impact upon Māori was the loss of land, mana, language, culture, uh, and they were called to, to die or to assimilate. Um, it also meant that the Māori expression of Christianity separated from the Pākehā expression and we get all the other expressions throughout the land by people like Tua Haumene, uh, Pai Mārere, uh, and Te Whiti Oromamai and, and uh, Te Kūti Rinutu and uh, Rua Kenana and all of these different ones as they sought to find responses. 
um, to uh, this colonization. I'm going to finish with this uh, slide of Whakahuyu Verko and then just put one slide after that about what possible response it could be. The church was silent from basically 1860 right through to, I would say, around 1985 in terms of the relationship between uh, the church uh, and Māori. And then in 1990, a man called Whakahuyu Verko who's a Tiarawa, who was the Archbishop of, um, the Māori Archbishop, stood on, on the on the pai at uh, Waitangi. In an unexpected way, he spoke this message. And I think it was a prophetic message which still resonates today. It was unexpected because um, he was not a political person at all, and they didn't expect this from him, the Queen and all the assembled people. And he said this, I want to quote from Psalm 137. And by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. It is much more expressive in Māori, and I take liberties uh, with the scripture. By the waters of Waitangi, which means the weeping waters, we sat down and we cried and we remembered Zion. Some of us have come here to celebrate, some to commemorate, some to commiserate, but some to remember what happened on the sacred ground. We have come to the sacred ground because our tūpuna left us this ground 150 years ago. A compact was signed. A covenant was made between two people. To this place where a treaty was signed, uh, a covenant was made, a unique and unusual circumstance. Some of us have come here to remember what our tūpuna said on this ground that the treaty was a compact between the two people. But since the signing of that treaty 150 years ago, I want to remind our partners that you have marginalised us. You have not honoured the treaty. We have not honoured each other in the promises that we have made in this sacred ground. Since 1840, the partner that has been marginalised is me. The language is yours, the custom is yours, the media by which we tell the whole world is yours. What I came here for is to renew the ties that made us a nation in 1840. I don't want to debate the treaty. I don't want to renegotiate the treaty. I want the treaty to stand firmly as the unity, the means by which we are the one nation as I remember the songs of our land, as I remember the history of our land. I weep here on the shores of the Bay of Islands. May God grant us the courage to be honest with one another to be sincere with one another, and above all, to love one another in the strength of God. So I come to the waters of Waitangi to weep for what could have been a unique document in the history of the world of indigenous people against the Pākehā, and I still have the hope that we can do it. Let us sit and listen to one another. Yeah. I'm going to finish with this slide and not go into the future or leave that. I want to finish on a, on a note of hope, and this, I believe, is another prophecy from a man uh, called Tamihana Tiraipraha, who was the famous Tiraipraha's son. And Tamihana Tiraipraha, along with Martina Tafifi, was one of the former formation people of the Kingitanga. Uh, and after the wars, when so many Māori had lost, uh, lost hope, etc., Tamihana uh, stood up and he spoke these words. And it's an old whakatoki that actually comes out of Rangiatea uh, and it's very common through the land, but he put a, a new spin on this on this whakatauki, and he prophesied, and he said this: uh, e kuri au ngaro he kākano i rui mai i rangi atia. 
He says this never it will never be lost, the seed which was sown from Raniatia. Now Raniatia represents the place of Eeyore's dwelling. It represents the place in Raniatia where they set up the altars for Eeyore. It sets it, it also refers to the Raniatia in, in, in Kafia, but ultimately in his view it it refers to the Raniatia in Otaki where where Tamati uh, where where Tafifi and, and, and Tamihana uh, set up a church in Otaki and buried the Modi under the altar and said that this this is the, the place of God. And he's saying, we this has been sowed into the soil of the land. And what has been sown in the soil of the land that has come out of heaven, he says, will never be lost. And I want to leave us with that, that in the midst of this, this podi, in the midst of the sadness, in the midst of the of what we see at the moment, that the gospel is in the land, it's in the soil, and it ultimately has come out of heaven. And I stand with him mm. and, and agree with him and say, uh, e pā, tai mai, tai rangatiratanga ki a mitiatau e pā ai ki ronga ki te whenua. Let your kingdom come, heriti. Let your kingdom yeah. come on earth as it is in heaven. And that, that seed of the, of the kingdom is here. And I believe that one of the things that we're doing in a prophetic and a prayerful way is actually blowing upon that seed uh, and looking to God to see how we can actually uh, resurrect it the time of the Arana. I'm sorry for all that. Right? To hear